This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better it was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly so you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues including cuts scrapes burns sunburns rashes other types of skin damage it's totally safe non-toxic suitable on all types of skin even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin this is also safe for the young members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients, active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family. So to get your own active skin repair, go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20% off your order when you use the code shameless. That's activeskinrepair.com. Use the code shameless for 20% off your order. Activeskinrepair.com, code shameless. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean, and I'm here to give you and other passionate, dedicated moms the tools you need to bridge the gap between motherhood and living the life of your dreams. I'm also here to help you be a little more shameless every day, because if you aren't building a life you're extraordinarily proud of, what kind of legacy are you building? So let's dive in. On today's episode, we're talking with Angela Arsenault, who is the features editor at Parent.co, a publication about parenthood. Angela's journalism career includes writing for The Week magazine, as well as working as a freelance journalist for The New York Post, Gotham, LA Confidential, New You, and Kids VT. She has written an online column called Ms. Monogamy for Blistree.com and contributed to their sister site, Mommyish.com. Angela also reviews children's television shows for Decider.com. Angela also just recently released her own podcast, Where Was I?, about primary caregiver parents re-entering the workforce. So welcome to podcasting for Angela. I'm excited to talk to her about that. So I set out on this interview to talk to Angela about some articles she wrote recently specifically pertain to gender and how to raise boys to be the boys we want them to be and break out of some long time social constructs around raising boys and In my opinion, I would like to see us raising more emotionally intelligent men. And Angela definitely touches on how we can do that and with some three really great steps and pieces of advice. In addition to that, we talk about four behaviors to model that will make the world better for your daughter. So this is what I wanted to dive into on this episode. What also transpired, though, was talking with Angela about her work and re-entering the workforce because that is so relevant to her new podcast. So that was a really great conversation. I know so many of our listeners are in a place where you have maybe put a career on hold or your kids are approaching a certain age and you're trying to figure out, like, where do I go from here? And there's just such an evolution with 
career tracking and parenting and what all happens with that. And so I was definitely excited to pick Angela's brain a little bit about that and hear her own personal experience. In addition to that, we talk about social media with kids, how to address the dangers of social media with your kids and at what age that is appropriate. And we talk about privacy and social media. And I have to tell you, there were some things about privacy and social media that kind of surprised me that might surprise you too. So my like gut instinct is to be super nosy mom. And apparently being super nosy mom is not necessarily the best thing for your child or for your relationship with your child. Of course, protecting your child is important, but there's also something to be said for giving them a certain level of privacy. So that was a really interesting conversation. And I'm happy to be having this conversation while I have a three and a half year old, because I feel like I got some really good ideas of what I need to be doing over the next 15 years. And so Angela was just chock full of excellent advice. So let's go ahead and dive in and get started with Angela Arsenault. Angela Arsenault, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so happy you could join us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Sarah. So you have a lot of things going on. You work specifically with parents in a couple different ways through your writing. And you also just launched your podcast. So congratulations. Isn't podcasting fun? Thank you. Yes, it's kind of my new favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. Like my other work, I'm like, oh, everything else is kind of boring now. <laughs> yes, I don't know. That could be problematic, but for now, it's actually a great problem to have. Isn't it? It's nice to have fun projects that like kind of reignite the fire a little bit. Yeah. With podcasting, I feel like there's a lot of freedom, although there's like so many podcasts and you might say that like the market is crowded at the same time. If you if your content is great and you find a way to stand out, then you can really soar. And it's a way to ignite a passion, you know, that you didn't even know you had. It's really cool. Definitely. It's fun to see where it takes you because I know when I started and it's been just a few months, but I know when I started, I was like, I'll try this and see how it goes. And it evolves really quickly. So you've got to look forward to for sure. Yeah. Well, I do look forward to it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about yourself and your passion for your work, which it sounds like is evolving right now as we're speaking and how that fits into family life. Cause I know you also have two kids. Yes. So I have a daughter who just turned eight and a son who just turned six. My position now at Parent Co. is the first time that I've worked outside of the house uh, on any sort of regular basis since before having kids. So I've been a writer for several years, but while my kids were really little, I still consider eight and six pretty little, yeah. but um, when they were at home full time, so was I. And so my work was freelance and sporadic. Okay. <laughs> and so my son started kindergarten in the fall, last fall, and our son's our youngest. So it was kind of that time where I felt for the first time in seven years, I actually had a chunk of time during the day that I could dedicate to work and figuring out what I wanted that to look like. So I've been really lucky to land here at Parent Co., a place where, as you would hope, family is valued and balance is a value. So I am able to leave if I need to meet the bus after school or parent-teacher conferences. Any sort of like family obligation is honored. Yeah, it's a really great way to transition back into the workplace after having been out of any sort of formal workplace for seven years. So I imagine that makes it sound like it was kind of a seamless re-entry for you, but I imagine there was some bumps <laughs> along the way. Was it uh, <laughs> anything challenging? You know, I found that, I guess, again, add it to the list of like good problems to have. When you love what you're doing, you want to spend more time doing it. 
And I have struggled a little bit with figuring out where to draw the line for myself, where to actually, where and when to really stop working, like close the laptop, even what doesn't <laughs> necessarily belong on the kitchen counter and to really be present with my kids when I'm with them, which I know I struggled with before I was working too. There are a million things to be distracted by, but it's been an interesting experience for me to realize, oh, if I, if I just spent like 10 more minutes on this thing that I started at work, just an hour here, then it'll be fine. I'll just do a little bit of work at home. And I want to be careful not to develop those habits. Those boundaries are so hard. And especially, you know, if you were doing work from home, if you were writing from home while your children were little, then that's kind of part of your routine is like being on the computer at home at certain times and stuff. So I imagine (laughs) that makes it even harder to have those boundaries because that is something that you're accustomed to having to squeeze in here and there. That's so true. Right. (laughs) My mentality hasn't caught up with my reality, maybe. (laughs) Right, right. So you were introduced to me through some of your writing specific to technology and then kind of gender roles with boys and girls. That's what I'm really excited to talk a little more about. And I want to address, so three different articles that you wrote that we're going to make sure that we put in the show notes. So everyone can find these articles over at shamelessmom.com. But the articles are the urgent role of parents in the age of sexting and cyberbullying. And then boys will be the boys we teach them to be and the four behaviors to model that make the world better for your daughter. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we're going to dive into in a minute here, but that is a little bit different than your podcast. So can you talk about, you have your writing that you do that you've been doing for a while now and talk a little bit about your freelance writing or in Mm -hmm. your job now versus your podcast and where those two intersect. Well, the intersection probably really would be interviews and the fact that when I was freelance writing, a lot of what I was doing, and actually from the time I started freelancing in uh, 2004, one of the first things I was doing was interviews and profiles. And I just found that I love the process of asking questions, getting to know someone or getting to know their story, and then processing it a little bit for myself and then sharing that story with readers or listeners. And so I've been doing a lot of that in my writing. Um, and also when I was freelancing and being a full-time stay-at-home mom, I was writing a lot of first-person parenting pieces. Okay. I wrote for a website called Mommyish and for their sister site, blistry.com. And the podcast is really at the intersection of those two things, I would say, because it's called Where Was I? And it's inspired by the transition that I am still currently in, but that really started for me back in the fall, as I mentioned, when my youngest child began school full time. And so the podcast was a way for me to explore with, I have a podcasting partner, Jessica Tickton, who's also a freelance journalist and has public radio experience. And the podcast was a way for me to explore this transition, figure out how other people are navigating it. And the really exciting thing is we've talked already. We've interviewed some incredible resources. We spoke with Anne-Marie Slaughter, who wrote Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family. And she also wrote that Atlantic Magazine article in uh, 2012 called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Oh. Uh, and we talked with Amy Cuddy, the author of Presence. And we've talked with Carol Fishman Cohen, who founded a website or a company called I Relaunch, all about helping career breakers get back in either the career they left or just back into the workforce. And we're just really exciting to talk to people. And I just love to ask 
questions. Right now, it sounds like I just love to talk, <laughs> but actually, I'm much more comfortable asking questions. Being on the other end, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's just been a wonderful combination of those two things because we do. I weave a little bit of my own story into the podcast as well. Oh, nice, which is really fun. I do that too. It's so yeah. nice to insert your own stories. So yeah, I mean, it gives fun. context. I think it oh, makes yeah. it makes relatable. you very relatable as podcaster, as the host. Yeah, that's very cool. And I know that I see a lot, I work with a lot of moms here in Seattle and I see so many moms who are home for a few years and it might be like two or three years, it might be five to 10 years, but there is this like crazy identity shift that happens when you go from workforce to stay at home and then if and when you go back from stay at home back to the workforce. It's like, I think it's, a little bit of probably one should assume that there will be a little bit of an identity crisis. I struggled. I thought that I would be more stay at home than I've ended up being because when I, my son was three months old, I was like, I'm going to die if I have to keep doing this. Like this was, <laughs> I thought I would totally dig being like stay at home mom. Not so much. So. And it's great that you were, we never, I think Jessica and I are very aware of wanting to always acknowledge truly what a privilege it is and what is to have that the freedom to make that choice, yeah. to test out those waters, to say like, no, I actually really think that my kids will be better off if I'm the one at home with them. And so I'm going to take a break right now. And the decision is also often financially driven. I know for my husband and I, it didn't really make sense. We would have paid more for childcare right. than I would have earned doing what I was doing. So, but yes, we always want to acknowledge that we're very lucky to have had the opportunity <laughs> to see what it was like to stay yeah. home with our kids. And, and I think it's really okay if you get three years into it and think, oh gosh, wait a minute, I'm losing myself. I don't know who I am anymore. Like this isn't exactly what I want. Right. And I would hate to, I don't know, just sometimes I probably cross the line into being overly careful, but I just think it's important to acknowledge that fact that not everyone can Take that, you know, make that chance, can make that leap. Yeah. I was like, oh, this will be like a dream come true. And then I was like, this is not the dream I imagined. Yes. Just like so many experiences in life. We, yeah. I read somewhere like years and years ago, I think I read something in the New Yorker or something that said there was a study that determined humans are terrible predictors of their own happiness. And <laughs> That has stuck with me because I think that applies to so many situations. And then we might think, well, I'm too far down this road now. I can't back out. I can't change my mind. And even if I'm unhappy, but that's not the case. Yeah, I knew. I mean, we had kind of an evolution of my work in the home and different child care situations for the first two years. And then my son went into preschool, which is four days a week, full days, (laughs) which is has been amazing, but there's definitely, there's a little bit of an evolution and you try different things and different things work at different times and you do what works for you at any given time. And it's fine. Um, so the best parenting advice I got was when my son was really, really little. And one of my clients said to me, you just do what works until it doesn't work anymore. And don't listen to anyone at like, don't get freaked out by everyone giving you advice. Just do what works for you until it doesn't work anymore. And that's kind of how we ended up doing it. It was like for three months, it was okay. And then we needed like the next step in the process. And then we had a nanny for a while. And and then we did that for as long as that worked. And yeah, I think that's perfect. There's not a lot of advice that I think is particularly valuable, but that sounds like really solid advice. <laughs> I will say it's the one and you now I've been getting parenting advice for like four and a half years since um, I was pregnant. And that is like the one piece that's really stuck out to me and, and allows me to never feel guilty about anything. I'm like, this is what's working yeah. for us right now. We're going to keep doing it. So. Yep. 
That's so important because there's such a great allowance in that notion. And that's something that I think all parents and especially mothers, I think, could use a little more of is just you know, being kinder to ourselves, yes. giving ourselves oh more gosh. allowances to be right. We don't have to always know the answer. And even if we thought we did, we can change our minds. Yes. I like the idea of you can always change your mind. You don't have to stick with what you originally thought was the right thing. So. Yep. No reason given. Just change your mind. <laughs> so I'm going to have us shift gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about you have some great like gender specific advice that mm-hmm. I've read about. And I want to talk a little bit about that we're going to start with boys because I have a son. (laughs) So when I started reading through your writing, I was really intrigued by what you had to say about raising boys and the idea that boys will be what we teach them to be. And like you specifically addressed the phrase man up in the article, Mm. which I was so grateful because I cannot stand (laughs) that phrase. It's so destructive. And I hear it in so many contexts and it's not to young boys. I hear it just like very, I hear it in professional contexts and it's, I just think it's so inappropriate. So can you go ahead and share with us your top three ways that we can start to change the dialogue and the vernacular with our boys and where you see us coming from hopefully and where you, what you see us moving toward if we can kind of shift gears in our conversation with young boys? Yeah, well, it's sort of interesting for me, I guess, maybe no one else, but for me, uh, the writer, to look back on the evolution of this series of pieces that we're talking about, because originally I started researching and I was just like, oh my gosh, I need to figure out what's going on with technology, what's going on with sexting, like what's going on with cyberbullying. And so much of my focus was on the technology side of things and like, what's it like to be a teenager now with the way technology is and the more research I did, the more I realized there are so many things that are different now. The things that are really important at the very core of our culture and how we raise kids, for better or worse, they just haven't changed that much. So I started thinking about what are the foundations that we tend to build and how if we change those foundations that will actually address a lot of the messy, awful stuff that's going on in the technological realm. So the first thing, as you mentioned, that I thought about in terms of boys, and also I should mention this was very um, sexuality kind of focused, sex, love, relationships, kind of taking it all in like big picture and thinking about how we talk to our kids about these things. Because let's face it, that's what a lot of teenager dumb is about, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what I was thinking about when I was looking into sexting and cyberbullying. So the first thing I thought about, as you said, was this phrase, you know, man up or be a man, act like a man. And, and even before that, the phrase boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. And I just thought like, what does that even mean? That makes right. all kinds of assumptions and it makes things okay that really aren't okay. And it makes things, it normalizes things that aren't actually normal if you talk to boys. This one about, instead of saying, be the aggressor, consider teaching your boy to be the lover. And that means loving himself, loving his friends. I cited a really, what I found a really interesting study that stated boys of all ages really long for close friendships, but they don't think that that's okay. They don't understand that most of their friends probably want the same thing. And the way that our society is set up, the way that the gender signifiers that we kind of have in place 
teach boys from a fairly young age that their relationships with other boys should be about kind of doing stuff like, Mm -hmm. and there's like the rough housing and when they're really young. And of course some of that is great and natural and you should do that, but that doesn't have to be the focus that they haven't had this practice to have intimacy with friends the way that girls do, because it's so much more culturally accepted for girls This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily, It's very digestible, and the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. So that was the first one, like teaching your boys that gentleness is a good thing, you know, and loving themselves is a good thing as well as 
having close friendships. It's just really important for boys. And we don't tell them that it is. We don't tell them that it's okay to want that. My son is in a classroom of nine girls and three boys. And I have to say, I love it because I feel like the friendship focus is very different. And last Mm -hmm. year he was in a classroom that was much more evenly split. And so this classroom, it's just less physical. It's Gene on a different level. It's very interesting. And he like comes home every day and he wants to show me his ballet moves and he's been wearing a princess dress all day. And I'm like, this is fabulous. Like, I'm yeah. so glad. I would so much rather have this. But I also think, I'm like, I'm sure there's some other parents that maybe would not be totally into this, but I feel like it's been such a blessing to have a child who's been in a situation where things are just a little more like, it's not to say that girls can't be rough and tumble because they certainly can, mm-hmm. but yep. there's just a different sense to the relationships and the kind of play that goes on. And I really, I love that. Yeah. And if you think about childhood as like a practice ground, you know, where we're just learning as we go and figuring out what feels good to us and what doesn't and what seems okay to other people and what isn't. If a boy, a young boy can be in an environment where he's actually getting to practice the more emotional side of his own personality, you know, getting to develop that, I think it sets him up really well for later in life, Mm -hmm. even for being a teenager who someone who's okay with the fact that he would rather have a girlfriend than multiple random meaningless sexual partners. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the assumption we make. That's what boys want and girls want the other thing. Girls want the the long-term dedicated relationship and the more intimate boys would like 99% of boys would rather have sex with a girl they loved than with a random girl. I read that statistic and it's so funny because it made me realize when I read that, I was like, what? Like, that is not all what I would have expected, (laughs) which really feeds into like, we all have these perceptions and assumptions that we've had our whole lives. And so like thinking back to the guys I went to high school with, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure they didn't really care who they were having sex with. (laughs) To read that statistic was like, wow, like actually they probably did. It's just that there was no one gave them the context to identify that. And even in the way we teach sex ed in our country, set up to support those assumptions Uh you know girls are put in one room and boys are put in the other and girls it's like this is your period and this is pregnancy and it's scary and dark you're not going to enjoy it it's going to hurt you know and then boys it's like well here's your penis and this is what this is an ejaculation and it's going to happen it's just you know out of your control like this idea that like almost like detaching the physicality from the person, you know, is this something out of their control? And that's just not the reality, but it's how sex ed has been taught for years and, you know, generations in our country. But my thinking is that if parents become more involved in sex education, we could change that at least for a number of boys and girls. (laughs) Right. Well, and you had a statistic, which I also wanted to mention about 61% of 15 to 18 year old boys said that their parents had a lot or some influence regarding their decisions about sex, which just fully supports the idea that the conversations should definitely be happening at home. It should not be like, let's just let the school take care of it. Right. And of course that gets into our own comfort levels with sexuality and Mm -hmm. sex and talking about it with our kids. And that's maybe a topic for a whole, uh, (laughs) a whole nother interview, (laughs) but it's something to definitely take a look at for yourself. Mm -hmm. I think just in the interest of setting your kids up for success in their own relationships. Also, I think for, yeah, I agree for setting your 
kids up for success in relationships. And there's the idea of emotional intelligence and like helping foster that in boys, I think is so important. And so when I saw that statistic, I thought it was so interesting because it made me realize if you can help your child develop their emotional intelligence, then they're going to be more likely to be influenced they're going to be open to their feelings and more influenced by the parent dynamic and the parent relationship. I think that was a piece of in your article that say this, not that Mm -hmm. Um, one of the parts that you had in there was one of the things that we talk to boys about or teach boys consciously or unconsciously is that anger is okay. Sadness is not. And so we pull out the emotional, we just glaze over the whole emotional piece of like all of life. Right. The multidimensional nature of the full range of human emotions is almost made unavailable to boys Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense by the way that we signal to them what is okay for them to feel and what or show really because they're going to feel it regardless of what we do but they get a lot of signs that they shouldn't show certain emotions and I think like you're saying if we as parents can talk to our sons about all the different emotions they might feel and even different ways they can express those emotions from the time they're young, they are more likely to express those emotions to us, to their parents. I think it's, I keep thinking about this idea of just like, just keeping the door open for them Mm -hmm. at all stages. And so when they're young, it's as if there is no door, like, no, there's not even a chance that they're going to not come to you my son, when I come home from work, still like at six years old, like runs up to me and gives me a hug. And there's just no <laughs> attempt at, you know, hiding any of the emotions. Right? I love that. But yeah. I know it's not going to be like that forever. So right. I just want to show him as many times and in as many ways as I can that I love that and that it's okay and that he should talk about his emotions. And I love this bit that I learned from Amy Shallot, who I quote in the piece, that gets to relationships and teenage relationships. If boys have been taught that sadness is not really okay for them to feel, then what can they do with that feeling when they go through a breakup? Like right. they're supposed to just, they're supposed to be okay with it. They're not supposed to feel sad. And I kind of took it one step further and thought, well, if they know that sadness is not okay, but anger is, then won't they just turn that sadness into anger? And then how are they going to express that? Right. You know, and is it going to come out? in a negative way as an expression of anger towards the girl that or boy that they broke up with. Obviously I can't solidly predict that, but seems kind of likely. Oh yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. We actually recently did an interview with Dr. Jennifer Freed and she was talking about, she's a child psychologist and she was talking about even, I was saying how we're trying to teach my son different emotion words and, mm. but I said, like, I don't ever want to lead him to be like, oh, are you feeling nervous? Are you feeling worried? Because he mm. tends to have a little bit of anxiety. And I'm like, God, all the feeling words I'm giving him are like not very positive. And so she was talking that. about the concept of just helping young children. But I think it would be especially useful for boys because this is not culturally done in a lot of environments, but teaching them how to identify different emotions at a much younger age so that they can put words with the emotions. And I think if you do that at a really young age, then it will carry them through those challenging times later where they can say like, these are the three things I'm feeling right now versus just shutting it all down and then having that conversion into anger that you're talking about. Absolutely. 
But I think that you have to, parents have to be having those conversations and using those emotional words as well. And if you have one or both parents who don't or can't do that, then especially if it's like, if the father figure in the household can never say like, I'm feeling worried or this makes me sad. Or like, if you never see your father figure identifying strong emotions or demonstrating, you know, visible emotions, then all the more, I think that the young boys are going to not be able to do that and not see that as reasonable and appropriate. Yeah. And I do think that thankfully, I think that has changed, you know, over the years a little bit, I do think, but yeah. I think there's surprisingly still a long way to go. Yeah. And, and that's sort of what the third piece that I talked about in the article was this notion that girls prefer the strong silent type sort of how I put it. And that's just not true. No. I don't. I want my weeping man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always think I'm like a huge friends fan. And I always think of that episode where Rachel gets her new boyfriend played by Bruce Willis yes. open up and like, then he just won't stop crying. And she's like, okay, never mind, Forget it. Go back to the way you were before. <laughs> so like, I obviously there's a lot of room in the middle there. I think if we can, again, model for our sons that having conversations about your emotions and, as you say, providing them from a young age with that vocabulary, it will help them immeasurably in their own relationships and it will just make them feel okay about their feelings. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that schools are, I hope, doing a better job. I mean, I feel like this is really, I think just emotional intelligence is becoming something that there's just so much more awareness of. So I think that awareness and conversation about all this is great. Just, and, and I think that that will help parents, even if you were raised in a household where not a lot of emotion was shown. I think that I'm seeing parents who are able to start to cultivate that in themselves a little bit in order to foster that in their children, which I think is really fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Again, it gets back to that uh, the idea of working on ourselves to help our children. Yes. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm, I've been working with a therapist for almost a year now. And my husband and I went in wanting to talk about like, if we wanted to have a second child or not, this is this huge decision for us. <laughs> kind of all flipped around. And now I'm going by myself and talking about having anxiety. Didn't even know I had. <laughs> but what's been really interesting is it's been so helpful for me to identify that in myself and then see how already I see signs of that in my child and having awareness in myself allows me to be much more supportive of him and kind of like hold his hand through this. And I'm so grateful that I started putting all this together when I did, because I feel like it's probably been a big part of my life for a long time and just something that I've always kind of been like, oh, I'm just a worry wart, whatever. But like, I don't want my child to be that way. I remember being a worrier as a kid. I feel so grateful to see that in myself now. I feel grateful that I can, at an early age, help him identify what is he feeling and how can he manage those feelings and work through those feelings rather than just being this nail biter kind of a kid. Even if it might still possess a little bit of that, we can still, work, you know, we can definitely work through it. So I think the work on yourself is just so instrumental in helping your children like let's allow our children to evolve further than us by exactly working on ourselves yeah. well it's so. really interesting when you if there's something about yourself that you know on some level but you haven't really acknowledged and you've kind of always disliked it for me that was anxiety and panic and panic attacks and uh, I just hated that about myself that I had panic attacks and and then going to a therapist and really learning 
about dealing with panic attacks and then like forgiving myself for having that as an issue. It means that when I notice those things in my children, I don't do that thing, that unconscious thing of that self-loathing thing, you know, where I hate it in them too. I think that would be like the worst mistake I could make is if I started seeing things in my kids that reminded me of those things, those parts of me that I don't like. If I haven't faced those things in me and I see them in my kids, it almost scares me to even like think of how I would react to them because I've gone to a bunch of therapy and learned how to deal with my own issues. And when I see it in my kids, then I just want to help them. Right. And it's not about like, and you know, the tools, I mean, the tools are going to be a little different for, you know, a middle-aged woman than a five-year-old, but yeah, you come from a position of like, you can enable a lot more support. and And it's also, I know this is sort of off track, but I think it's relevant too that, there's a lot of healing that can take place when you're showing compassion toward your children mm-hmm. for some, for, you know, for an issue that you had, whether it's anxiety or a great discomfort around your own sexuality or mm-hmm. anything like that. I think when you show compassion for your kids in that area, it's really healing for yourself too. Yes, yes, totally. I think that makes so much sense. So let's switch over to girls and the behaviors that you would suggest we model to make the world better for our daughters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I realized like half an hour ago, I probably said something about most advice being crap. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I get the irony here, but these ideas really came out of conversations with friends and coworkers and just thinking about, I love my mom and my dad and I think they did a great job and the best they could with all the information they had at the time. But, you know, I did spend some time thinking, like, what would it have been really cool to have as a kid? You know, what sort of like. And so the first one that sprang to mind for me was modeling a positive body image. And when you're talking about girls and sexuality, I mean, so much of it has to do with a girl's self-perception, you know, her perception of her own body, her own, you know, as a teenager, her own sexiness. And experimenting with that and figuring out what that even means, because it's brand new once you're getting into puberty and stuff, you know. And if you can build for your daughters a solid foundation where she understands what her body is and isn't for, you know, and has an inherent respect and kind of my dream would be for my daughter to grow up with, like, feeling almost a sense of awe about herself, her body. Oh, I love that idea. And I know it's, it's a lofty one, but my gosh, that would just set her up so nicely. Yeah. You know, we're inundated in our culture with mm-hmm. visuals of perfection. What someone has decided is representative of perfection in our culture. And as we know, those benchmarks are largely unattainable to the majority of the population. Right. So I just think, my gosh, what a whole lot of time and mental energy I could save my daughter if, if she just grew up loving her body. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to redo my like growing up experience (laughs) with that concept of just being in awe of my body. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It it seems like such a major one to me, I guess because, you know, here I am 39 and two kids later and still like, 
I've caught myself having conversations in front of my daughter about calorie counting or just, it's a slip. If once you're aware of it, then you realize how many times you're talking about this stuff in front of your daughter. And it's just like unhealthy. It's just not wise. Right. Yeah. It's pretty amazing how much energy and focus is on your body as a woman even if you are really conscious of that, or really conscious of not letting that get in the way of things or conscious of, you know, loving yourself as you are. And I think sometimes about guys, I'm like, what is it like to go through life with just like not even having that on your radar to like not even be aware of being judged by your body or having thoughts positive or negative, just to live in total neutral territory about your body. And that's not to say that no guys, guys have that to some degree, I think mm-hmm. some sense of self-awareness around their body. But for women, I think it can be so all-consuming. And yeah. even for women who have healthy relationships with their bodies as adults, I think at some point, most women didn't. At some point, women felt a level of discomfort. It's almost like a rite of pas- passage to mm-hmm. be like, oh, well, from you know 14 to 16 or 16 to 18 or whatever, like I had an eating disorder or disordered eating or whatever. I mean, it's just such a part of, like, again, I feel like it's almost a rite of passage. It's just such a part of our culture to have no concept of self-consciousness around your body. Like, I don't think that exists for any women. I know what a gift. And of course I'm not saying like, well, if you just model a positive body image, then your daughter will be in that group. I completely acknowledge that it's sadly it's so much of it is unavoidable. So many negative ideas and messages are just out there and they're going to reach your daughter, but it's still just the hope that do what you can to build that solid foundation for her so that maybe in those really hard times, in those the 14 to 18 or 16 to 18 years old, even when a voice enters her mind that says, like, you look fat, you should be thinner, you know, or you should this or you should that, at least there will hopefully all be a competing voice that is saying, you are amazing just as you are. Right. You are beautiful. You are incredible. I just want to be that voice in my daughter's head to at least attempt to combat all the other voices. This episode is supported by Earn In. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn now can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Super, super easy to use. You just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then you can access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. So the app is free. You can leave a tip if you want. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So here's the thing. Sometimes getting close to your next paycheck, next pay period, and you realize, oh gosh, like paycheck doesn't come until next Friday, but we have this event that we need to attend this weekend and we need money for it. Or we have to buy a gift for someone. Or, oh my gosh, like my kid tore through their shoes and now we have to buy new shoes this weekend and the money's not in the bank yet. So Earnin can help you access the money you've already earned at work by giving you this little bit of money in advance. So make Earnin part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security, and it gives me a lot of peace of mind. 
So for our listeners, all you need to do is download Earn In today. It's spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, and you can download it in Google Play or the Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Shameless Mom under podcast when you sign up. So there'll be a little place where you can, where it says, what podcast did you hear about them on? Type in Shameless Mom under podcast. This helps to show support for our show and our advertisers. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, and subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And I think that your next, I have this little list in front of me of your four behaviors to model. And I think that the next three would very much support, like that number one would support the body positivity idea if you can conquer the other three, if you want to go ahead and dive into those. And because I feel like these are kind of the keys. If you have the other three, you probably will have a much better place and position with body positivity. Yeah. And I think that's definitely how the list evolves. And so the second was to model for your daughters, what a strong, supportive female friendship looks like or many female friendships, you know, and I thought back to myself in junior high and I kind of thought that being a strong girl was being a mean girl, you know, or being a mean girl was being a strong girl. And I wish that I had gotten the memo then. And of course I say this and who knows how, even if I had gotten the memo, how it would have been received. But for sure, I want to show my daughter what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like to have these wonderful, supportive, beautiful women in my life. And I want her to see them comfort me when I'm sad. I want her to see them celebrate with me when I'm happy, all of it. I just want her to see all of it, to have a very concrete vision for herself of the positive benefits of having strong female friendships. Right. It's something I came to, you know, later in life, like maybe even after college, I had female friends, you know, but didn't quite get it. And maybe you can't quite get it until you're a little bit older and have a little more life experience. But I definitely was one of those girls who grew up craving the attention of boys more than girls, you know, it, girls liked me or if they didn't, it was just like, eh, okay, you know, <laughs> but can I get that cute boy to like right. me? Oh, that's so interesting. Cause I was like kind of the opposite where I always had the strong supportive friends and was like, Oh, the boys are scary and gross. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a better way to go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, uh, I would totally agree with you that the strong supporter f- female friendships are really key. And I think yeah. that as the older you get, you do see the value of them and you can look back on your life and see the value of them. You know, whether you see the value because they were missing or the value because they were there, I do think that you have a much stronger sense of that value as yeah. you age. And that actually leads into the third behavior to model, which is respect. And I didn't call it self-respect because I think that's just one part of a bigger piece of the puzzle. Self-respect is obviously so, so key and so important, especially for girls in dealing with sexuality and relationships and knowing that their consent is everything, you know, that if they say, nope, no, then it means no. And they have put it out there. And that is really, really important. And you have to respect yourself to really believe that your words matter. 
But the other part of it, to my mind, is the idea of respecting other women, other girls, you know, Mm -hmm. because sadly, so a lot of the slut shaming that happens online and then even extends into real life in schools is done by other girls, which makes me so sad. (laughs) And then I stand here at, like I said, 39 years old and can say, oh, that's really sad. But if I think about 14 year old me, I can understand it. I can understand the urge, the compulsion, you know, thinking that shaming another girl will make you more popular with the boys, you know, and maybe if we can instill this deep sense of respect in our daughters, we can help remedy that situation. And, you know, so that they feel more bonded to the other girls in their social circles or the outcast who's not in anyone's social circle, you know, but just because she's a woman understanding that you have a bond with her and you should do everything you can if needed to protect her. Yes. I love that idea of looking out for other women and starting that at a young age, like not just passing by, not being, and I talked about this on a recent episode, um, again, with Dr. Jennifer Freed, we were talking about bullying and, you know, she was saying you don't want kids to put themselves in harm's way to protect Mm -hmm. another child who's being bullied, but also don't turn a blind eye and not report something or not befriend someone on the playground. You know, if you see something go down, you don't need to put yourself into the middle of the situation, but you could go befriend yeah. that person later on and say like, I saw what happened. Are you okay? You know, like those kinds of things. I think yeah. that I was scared of being the next victim when I saw things go on, like any sort of bullying behaviors. And so I would just like turn a blind eye and like, I'm just like, I don't want to be involved. But looking back, I'm like, wow, you know, there was a few people that I saw be the recipient of the same harassment over and over. And in hindsight, I wish I would have just reached out to those. There's like three girls in my junior high class that I can think of. And I wish that I would have reached out to those girls in just small ways, like passing the hall or whatever, like just little gestures of connection, I think can make a big difference. Absolutely. And yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I definitely don't mean to imply that we should be asking our daughters to try to intervene when (laughs) it might be harmful or, you know, dangerous for them. But exactly what you're talking about. Those small gestures that just help lift another woman up instead of tearing her down. Right, right. Well, because if you aren't part, it's almost like the idea of you aren't part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And I think that, yeah. So if you can instill that idea in young girls, that like if you aren't helping build up the women around you, then all women kind of just stay where we're at. Like we get to stay earning 70 cents on the dollar. We get to stay in this, like all these things, like not that you can paint that the big, huge picture for a very young girl, but you can start to give them a sense of understanding of their place in the world and how powerful that can be. Yes, exactly. And again, now you've segued beautifully into the fourth (laughs) point, which is advocacy and just this notion that, you know, if you show up for your daughter when she needs you in ways big and small, I think that will just pave the way for her to believe that she can do it for herself and she can do it for other people. And it's those, there was something that happened recently here. I live in Burlington, Vermont, and just a few hours south of here in a town called Woodstock, there was an incident a couple months ago where there was a dress code hullabaloo and the administrators at the school decided to again, separate the boys and bring all the girls into the gymnasium. The boys were sent off to like literally play outside teenage boys. And 
the girls were told that they needed to do better to follow the dress code because their attire was distracting to the boys in the school. And I don't know, you know, what the inciting incident was, if there was one, but I know that there was outrage on the part of a lot of parents saying, like, are you effing kidding? Like, it is 2016 and you're doing this to my daughter. Yeah. And I was so happy to see the number of parents and a lot of mothers writing about it and expressing their frustration and their anger and how they think it could be done differently and you know, just so glad that the girls at that school had these women and men to look up to, to say like, yeah, this isn't right. Like what a horrible situation, but what a powerful experience. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so that's sort of like a larger scale example, but we can take it right down to like the individual. And I use the example in the piece that if you catch your daughter sexting, don't just punish her because then you're basically slut shaming your own daughter. Um, You know, it's like, open your mind, open it up, have a conversation with her, have a conversation about why she did it. A lot of girls at a certain age, especially younger girls who are sexting are coerced Mm -hmm. um, or harassed into sending a nude photo or a semi nude photo, you know, understand her side first. Don't just punish her, understand what's actually going on. And then you have an opportunity to teach her why she can say no again, back to the consent thing. Yeah. Would you recommend starting those kinds of conversations? Well, because in my mind, it's like 16, which I know is probably eight years too late. (laughs) Yeah. But it's just amazing to me what technology, I feel like it's made our kids grow up really, really quickly. So, you know, Facebook and a lot of other social media platforms state that the minimum age is 13 years old. You're not supposed to have a Facebook account until you're 13. So certainly at that point, you need to be talking about online responsibility and privacy. But I think even before then, you know, my daughter's, as I said, eight years old and just for the first time about a month ago asked me if she could have her own phone. (laughs) And I was like, well, why do you want your own phone? Of course, inside I'm going like, no, are you kidding me? Like (laughs) what? But I kind of like took a breath and was like, okay, why do you want one? And she's like, well, so that I don't have to ask you before I download apps. And I was like, okay, do you understand why I'd like you to ask me before you download apps? And, you know, it it leads into all these other questions. And I think that it brings up the age appropriate conversation. Yes. So, you know, my eight year old isn't going to say, well, I want my own phone so I can send nude photos, you know? (laughs) Right. And I mean, to be honest, probably neither is your 14 year old, but you might kind of infer that some of that's going on and then you have those age appropriate conversations. But I think with all of these difficult conversations, it's really important to let your child lead the conversation, Right. you know, like let them ask all their questions and they will ask only for the information that they know they're ready to take in. Right. So we're getting a little close on time here, but I want to make sure I get in two more questions. So one is how much, because I read about this in one of your articles and I was surprised by your answer because I'm super nosy. And so (laughs) you talked about how much privacy we should give kids when it comes to technology and social media. And me as a parent, I'm like, oh, I should like be able to access it all. Like I'm the kid who read my sister's diary like every day of of her life. I'm like, why should she have privacy? I was the older sister. I'm like, I need to make sure that she's keeping everything on the up and up. So 
I'm not saying that was right, but that was my attitude at the time. And she is, we've had many conversations since then about what a horrible sister I was, but how do we manage privacy with kids and technology? Well, I will say that I was the younger sister whose diary (laughs) was read. So maybe that's telling, but again, when I started doing this research, I felt the same way you, it sounds like you do, where I just thought, well, yeah, it makes sense. My kids stuff is like never going to be private and I just should have access to all of their online everything. And then as I dug deeper and read some different things, particularly this woman, Amy Adele Hassanoff, who wrote that in deciding that your child shouldn't have privacy, (laughs) again, you know, we're talking about modeling behaviors, right? Well, then they're not getting the message that privacy matters. And so why should they, your child, respect anyone else's privacy? And I mean, I also realized there are so many messaging apps right now and so many that I have never heard of. And tomorrow there will be a a million more by tomorrow afternoon. Yes. And so even if you think that you have the username and password to all of your child's online accounts and you just, you know, everything that's being said by them and to them, chances are that's not going to be true. They'll seek out a platform where they can express themselves privately and think about that. That's really important. I mean, our kids should feel like they can express themselves privately. I think that's important. And we did that growing up just in a different way. I mean, we were like constantly like I had little mailboxes in my locker and like we were passing notes all the time. And like my mom didn't read my notes. Right. I don't even right. think she knew they existed and they weren't, yeah. I mean, I was a big nerd, so they weren't anything dangerous. <laughs> so I think that there's like context, you know, if like, if something is going on that it seems like there's something, a harmful situation, it's one thing, but just yeah. to like, to be spying on everything on a day-to-day basis is a little bit different. So I definitely, I can see why a level of privacy should be respected. I am not sure I'll be able to manage that as a mom when I get there, depending on my child. I think it's really, really tough. And, you know, it requires so much trust. It actually requires that you have a lot of faith in the job you've done as a parent, which is a challenge for all of us, you know, because we know that we're screwing up in little ways on a daily basis. So it's hard to just feel really, really good about really confident about the job we've done. So confident that I can just let my son and daughter, you know, have all these private conversations and I don't need to know what's going on. I'm sure I'll be curious, but if you're curious, ask who knows what percentage of of what's going on that your teen or child will actually share with you. But, and I should say, I'm talking mostly about teenagers now. You know, if you're asking me, should I, monitor my eight-year-old's online, you know, usage. Yes. I mean, because they shouldn't be involved in social media, you know, their life doesn't need to happen online right now for teenagers. That's just where a lot of their social life happens. And I don't think that we can, maybe it'll change. Maybe there will be, you know, the pendulum will swing in the other direction by the time our kids are, you know, like, well, that's only like eight years for my daughter. So I don't know, but I just think in the meantime, the best we can do is create these strong foundations, have some trust, some faith in the job we're doing as parents and keep our radar tuned to like the things that don't seem quite right. And then ask about them. Right. You know, you can be an involved parent without being an overly involved parent. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think you made such a good point that if you have that foundation, you know, the things that we talked about with 
raising the boys, teaching boys to be the boys you want them to be Mm. and modeling these behaviors that we talked about for your girls. It's like, if you do a good job with those foundational things, then I totally agree with you that you have set yourself up for a much more positive experience when it comes to these bigger, more challenging situations as children become teenagers. And so I think that like laying the groundwork is so important. And I know that most of our listeners have younger children. I know we have some that have teenagers, but they're not on the older end of the teenage spectrum. And so I think this is such a valuable conversation to be having now so that we can really focus on laying the groundwork and using our resources as early as possible to cultivate these the behaviors that we want to see in our children and the attitudes that we want to see and the emotional intelligence that we want to see and the relationships that we want to see. Yes. So, <laughs> so that's, that's all, you know. Right. I know. It's so people. easy. It's so easy for me with my three-year-old to be like, come on, guys, just cultivate some good relationships. Yeah. <laughs> so, Angela, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I feel like you gave us so much helpful information, and I know we'll have to have you back because especially as your podcast gets I know it's new now, but as you get more deep into it, I would love to have you come back. And I feel like there's a few different conversations that we could have that we could go really deep into. So from now though, where can I send people to find you and follow you? So you can follow me on Twitter, although I'm a very infrequent tweeter, but I'm at just this breath at just this breath. And also at on parent co parent.co slash where was I is the landing page for the where was I podcast. And hopefully I will be writing another series um, coming up soon, hopefully in August. Excellent. And then I'll make sure that I link to the three articles. All of our questions came out of these three articles. So I'll make sure that those are all linked to in the show notes as well. So for those of you listening, you can get all the information from this interview and all the links that were mentioned over at shamelessmom.com in the episode here with Angela Arsenault. So thank you so much for being on the show with us on the Shameless Mom Academy. I really appreciate your time. And I know we went a little over, so I hope I'm not ruining your day. Oh, no, not at all. I so appreciate you being here and good luck with your podcast. I'm excited to go check it out. And I, I hope that you continue to enjoy it. Thank you so much, Sarah. As always, if this episode was helpful to you, please share with your network, share with your online communities, share with your other mom friends. You can find links to this episode at shamelessmom.com. And you can also find us on social media and share from there. So on Facebook and Instagram, we are at the Shameless Mom Academy. And I don't even know how this happened, but we're on Twitter. I've never really done Twitter or tweeted. So it's new and experimental for me, but we're on Twitter at the Shameless Mom. So you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook now. Constantly evolving in our social media networks here. So make sure to share this episode if it was helpful to you. And especially if you found that there was some really specific nuggets of wisdom that you'd like to pass on to other mothers. And as always, we welcome five-star reviews. You can go and leave us a review at shamelessmom.com forward slash review. That will take you right to our iTunes portal where you can subscribe to our show. So you would get all episodes every Monday and Wednesday as soon as they're released. And then you can also leave a review in that same location over at shamelessmom.com forward slash review. Thank you so much for listening today. Like I said, if this is your first time listening, we do release episodes every Monday and Wednesday. So keep an eye out for that. And I can't wait to have you back to listen in again. I can't wait to give you some more content to make your life a little bit better, help you live a little more shamelessly, and just help you get a little escape from the life of crazy parenting. So I hope that you have a fantastic day and no matter what you do, make sure you do it shamelessly.
Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking